Hello and welcome back to Panam, a podcast that pokes its nose into Paris's past and reveals some of its less savoury stories, not all of them suitable for children. In this episode, we'll be finding out about a storybook monster come to life, Henri Désiré Landru, otherwise known as the real Bluebeard. Like his fictive namesake, he had a full beard, even though it was not blue, and a propensity for murder. Let's start with the original story of Barbe Bleue, or Bluebeard. Once upon a time, in a castle far away, a terrible event occurred. It's an old French folk story of which the most famous surviving version dates back to 1697, although there are plenty of modern adaptations. It tells of a wealthy, powerful man who is, let's say, far from easy on the eye and has the distinguishing feature of having a blue beard. Now, he wanted to wed a young noblewoman, but she was not only put off by his peculiarly coloured facial hair, but also by his reputation. He'd been married a number of times already, yet all of his wives had mysteriously disappeared. However, after a prolonged courtship, he finally persuades the young woman to marry him. Then, after a few months of married life, he has to leave on business, and gives the keys to the chateau to his wife, telling her that she may go anywhere but to the forbidden room in the basement or face his wrath. Although she resists at first, she is overcome with curiosity and eventually heads down to check out what's there. And, unsurprisingly, she finds the bodies of his former wives. In horror, she drops the key, which becomes covered with their blood. And, this being a folk story, the blood magically sticks to the key and she's unable to wash it off no matter how hard she tries. Needless to say, when he returns and discovers the key, he knows what she's done and he is furious and vows that since she was so keen to see what was behind the forbidden door, she could now go and join the others there, permanently. She begs for a moment to say her prayers before he kills her, and he gives her this, but instead she uses the time to tell her sister, who happened to be staying with her, to call her brothers. The sister does so, and just in the nick of time, the brothers arrive, kill Bluebeard, and save her. She then inherits everything. That is the story of Bluebeard. But who was the man who came to be known as the real Bluebeard? Henri Désiré Landru was born in 1869 and lived in Belleville in the 19th arrondissement. He was born to poor but honest parents and he was very much a wanted child as his middle name, Désiré, which literally means desired or wanted, attests. He did well at school and then married his cousin, Marie-Catherine Rémy, and together they had four children. But later he would start a life of crime, first as a fraudster, conning people out of their money, but he was caught and sent to prison on a number of occasions for this. Landry had trouble holding down a job, and would also lie to his wife about what he was doing, inventing grandiose and important jobs for himself, but in reality, the truth was much more sinister. In 1914, 
the war in Europe begins, and Landru takes advantage of the confusion and the vulnerability of many women who find themselves widowed at an early age, and at a time when a lone woman had little power or status. He placed a number of adverts in the Lonely Hearts column, describing himself as a widowed and wealthy man looking to marry. Sadly, a number of women would fall for this ruse and meet an untimely end at his hands. This is how he met his first victim, 39-year-old Jean Couchet, who had a 16-year-old son and who, after moving into his house, they were never seen again. Landru then placed another advert on May the 1st and attract the attention of his next victim, Thérèse Laborde-Line. On June the 21st, she announced she was to marry a Monsieur Couchet and moved in with him. But again, she was never seen again. Landru immediately sold off her securities and personal belongings. Marie-Angélique Guyen answered the same advert and arrived on August 2nd at Landru's villa. She disappeared a few days later. Landru again sold her securities and, using forged papers, was able to obtain money from her bank account. Landru continued to use the same scam, using a variety of aliases, for four more years. Another seven women disappeared after answering his ads and moving to his villa, totaling eleven victims, ten women and one young man. The women came from diverse backgrounds and were different ages. He seemed to have no preference apart from their money, and certainly no pity. Needless to say, the families of the missing women contacted the police, concerned about the loved one's whereabouts. Some of them, of course, suspected the fiancé, but because Landru uses aliases to disguise his identity, it was difficult to track him down or link the cases together. Then, fate intervened. In April 1919, a friend of Madame Buisson, the eighth victim of Landru, recognised him coming out of a porcelain shop on the Rue de Rivoli accompanied by a woman. She ran to alert the police, but by the time they got there, the shop had closed. Undeterred, the police found the owner and brought him back to the shop. He not only remembered the customer with the distinctive beard, but as luck would have it, he was also able to provide a name and address. Landru had made an order under the name of Lucien Guillet and provide an address for delivery. Inspector Berlin is in charge of the affair and is determined to get to the bottom of it. He decides not to take any risks of losing this elusive individual and heads straight to the address. Let's us go there too. Berlin arrives here at number 76 Rue de Rochechoir in the 9th arrondissement. But by law, police were not allowed to arrest him until 6am. So the inspector decides to spend the night directly outside his flat on the landing so as not to let this slippery individual get away. Finally, at daybreak on the 12th of April 1919, the very day of his 50th birthday, they arrest him. But the prisoner refuses to cooperate. He denies any knowledge of the missing women and seemed unconcerned at being arrested. Thankfully, he had a criminal record so Inspector Bellin was able to pass by the Bureau of Anthropometry to find his file, which of course contained his measurements, his real name, and a mugshot. Landru could no longer claim that his name was Lucien Guillet, and admitted he was indeed Landru. But that was all. However, after arresting him, police found his notebook concealed in an inside pocket. 
It contained a list of 11 names, some real, some coded, and details of money and expenses. Landru was meticulous, but his attention to detail would, in the end, help to undo him. The 11 names suddenly became very interesting indeed. Some of them had already been reported missing, but who were the others, and how to find them? The press would help. His photo was published in all the newspapers. Everyone was talking about it, and thousands of people started coming forward. But sadly, although they were able to discover the identity of the women in the book, they were not able to find them, or their bodies. Where could they be? Neighbours in Gombia, which is in the suburbs of Paris where Landru rented a property under one of his assumed names, had already remarked the curious foul-smelling smoke which would punctually emanate from his property, and the unusual bearded man who would often appear there accompanied by a different woman each time. When police investigated, they would find a large stove, and amongst the ashes some human bone fragments which were identified as coming from six hands, five feet, and 47 teeth, from at least four different bodies. Finally, the mystery of where the bodies had gone seemed to have been solved, and the expenses in his notebook made sense. On his way to Gombia, he would buy two tickets, one return, the other a single. He knew in advance that only one of them would be needing a ticket for the way back to Paris. Yet there was still, as hard as this seems to believe, a doubt as to his guilt. Nobody, no crime, claimed his lawyer, the talented and fascinating Maître Moreau Giafferi, who took his argument in a rather theatrical direction during the prosecution, claiming that the so-called victims were not dead, but alive and well, and they had brought two of them to court as proof. All eyes turned expectantly to the doors, hoping to see the women enter. Ha-ha! You see, the lawyer was said to have exclaimed, you believe it is possible, you are not convinced they are dead, and therefore we cannot be convinced that my client is guilty. Unfortunately, he was caught out in his own game. Only one man did not turn to look at the door. Henri Désiré Landru knew full well that no one would be there. Monsieur le procureur, in the end, the jury deliberated for over two hours. Landru was found guilty and condemned to death. And on the 24th of February, 1922, he was executed by guillotine in Versailles. On his way to the guillotine, he thanked his lawyer for his hard work in defending him, and Giafferi took this opportunity to ask him. Tell me the truth, he whispered. Now that you have nothing to lose, what is your secret? Did you kill those women? To which he replied, My secret is my luggage, and I'll take it with me. He was buried, bar his head, which is gruesomely on display in a museum in California. Quite how it got there, I'm not sure. But the rest of him was buried in the cemetery in Versailles, a section reserved for those who were condemned to death, where later he would be joined by equally infamous Eugene Weidman, who, as well as also being a serial killer, would be the last person to be publicly executed in France. The inscription from his tomb was removed to avoid sightseers, and later his body was moved by his family. Today, if you're curious to learn more, well, there's a wealth of information. Films, songs, books, comics, documentaries dedicated to L'Entru. Even Renault, one of my favourites, has a song in which he features. You can go to the Musée de la Préfecture de la Police to see photos of Landru, his victims, the stove, 
as well as some of their objects. Of the films made, perhaps, the most notable is Monsieur Verdoux, based on a synopsis by Orson Welles and made into a film by Charlie Chaplin in 1948, but set in 1930s America. Landru killed for money. He was cold and ruthless, taking advantage of innocent women in the troubled, troubled times that followed World War I. Chaplin's Verdoux is ridiculous and a lot more sympathetic than Landru. It is, after all, a comedy. But his final message is indeed chilling and, considering the times, very brave. Monsieur Verdoux, you have been found guilty. Have you anything to say before sentence is passed upon you? Oui, monsieur, I have. However remiss the prosecutor has been in complimenting me, he at least admits that I have brains. Thank you, monsieur, I have. And for 35 years, I used them honestly. After that, nobody wanted them. So I was forced to go into business for myself. As for being a mass killer, does not the world encourage it? Is it not building weapons of destruction for the sole purpose of mass killing? Has it not blown unsuspecting women and little children to pieces and done it very scientifically? <laughs> As a mass killer, I'm an amateur by comparison. However, I do not wish to lose my temper because very shortly I shall lose my head. Nevertheless, upon leaving this spark of earthly existence, I have this to say. I shall see you all very soon. In case that was hard for you to make out, he says, As for being a mass killer, does not the world encourage it? Is it not building weapons of destruction for the sole purpose of mass killing? Has it not blown unsuspecting women and little children to pieces and done it very scientifically? As a mass killer, I am an amateur by comparison. Chaplin was of course not defending Landru or any serial killer but rather using this film as a vehicle to denounce the madness of war and to maybe empathise with the people who found themselves in an impossible situation following the financial crash in the US and the depression that followed. As for his victims, sadly, they never received a proper burial. Their bodies were never recovered, for good reason. However, in 1955, the burnt remains which had been found at Gambia were buried beneath a weeping willow in the Jardin de Plantes. Quand Landru, ce vieux salaud, coupa sa femme en petits morceaux Elle lui demanda dans un sanglot, je t'en prime aussi par les os Il répondit, je fais ce que je veux car je suis le roi Thank you so much for listening to the podcast and I do hope you enjoyed it. Do feel free to leave me any messages on social media or via the website. All information can be found at panampodcast.com as well as pictures for this episode and links to various clips. Take care. Bye-bye. Mais moi si je devins si saut, si j'ai des soucis depuis le berceau